a number of years ago, uh, we're on a, I was on a, a trip with a couple of other friends to uh, several places to, to check in on some supported workers that we, uh, yeah, that we partner with in, in gospel ministry. And one of the places that we, we were is, uh, was in Dubai, there in uh, the UAE, in the, in the Middle East. And it was, a, it was a great trip. There was some, some teaching that, that went on, lots of fellowship, getting to know people, encouraging the work that's going on there. Um, but near the end of our trip, uh, there, was a, there was a day that was going to be, a, it was a special time, it was going to be a day of baptisms. And the baptisms at, um, there in, in the church there in Dubai are, are always so encouraging because you have people literally from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are there who are turning from all these idols, all these false gods, and it's just remarkable to see how the gospel intervenes in people's lives and, 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 yeah, and pulls people out of, out of all sorts of stuff. Well, there was one particular uh, brother who was, was baptized separately than, than everybody else, which I thought was a little bit strange at first. There was, there was still a couple dozen people who were there who knew him personally, but what we came to find out was that the reason he was being baptized separately is because of the super high security risk with him publicly professing allegiance to Jesus. You see, he was from Saudi Arabia, and he... If, if you become a Christian in Saudi Arabia and, and renounce Allah, you die. And he was, um, he was professing his faith in Christ. He was not ashamed of it, but um, he was about to go back to Saudi Arabia, and there was something that's, that awaited him there. And what it was was this. He needed to go back because he needed to renew his, his state ID. And one of the things that you have to check on the application is your religion. And he knew that as soon as he came to that portion of the application, that he was no longer going to be able to write Muslim, but that he was going to need to write Christian or follower of Jesus. And he knew that that meant that he would likely never be seen again. His testimony was encouraging. The weight of it was real. He was baptized, professed faith in Christ and he went back to Saudi Arabia. Now the question that I would like us to think about for just a moment is, why would he make that kind of stand? Why would he be willing to face what he actually faced when he went back, which was the loss of friends, the loss of family, the loss of career, imprisonment, and potential death simply for Jesus? Why would he risk all of that to align with the gospel? Why would he do that? The reason is because he knew that it was true. He knew that the gospel message that he had heard about Jesus dying for his sins and rising from the dead was true. And he knew that it was worth it to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Pray for that, brother. When we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to see Paul encouraging the Thessalonians for the same sort of faith. A faith that was willing to stand publicly with Jesus and to follow Him regardless of the suffering that was certain to come upon them. And Paul sees their faith and he wants to encourage them 
for what God has done in them and encourage them to continue to follow after Jesus. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, <clears throat> which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. In this text, Paul is rejoicing because of the reception of the gospel among the Thessalonians, which was very different than the Jews who opposed it. So if we want to summarize what he's talking about here in, in maybe one, one sentence, it would be something like this. Receive the gospel as God's word because rejecting the gospel brings God's wrath. Receive the gospel as God's word because rejecting the gospel brings God's wrath. Our text, our, our sermon has two points. Receive the gospel as God's word and rejecting the gospel brings God's wrath. Let's look here first at receive the gospel as God's word, verse 13. Once again, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So as Paul, Silas, and Timothy mentioned back in chapter 1, they are moved to constantly, to continually, to unceasingly thank God because of the faith of the Thessalonians. And, and what encourages Paul specifically is how the Thessalonians responded to God's Word. Now, we, wanna, we need to clarify something here. What does he mean by the, the Word of, of God? Well, this is a synonym for the gospel. So certainly the Word of God can refer to the Scriptures, that's totally true, but oftentimes it's used as a synonym for, for the gospel, for the good news about Jesus. And that presentation of the good news about Jesus would have certainly included what God's Word revealed through the law and the prophets and the Psalms and the writings, but specifically it would have highlighted that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden all the way through to Abraham through the nation of Israel, that all of God's promises are answered in Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of everything that God ever promised about sending a Savior to rescue the world from their sins. The good news that, that Jesus indeed came that he lived as a man, the God-man, living a sinless life and then dying on the cross to take the judgment that sinners like you and I deserve and then rising from the dead three days later and, and delivering the good news <laughs> that anybody who will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. 
And then Jesus ascended into heaven where he now reigns as Lord and he has given his spirit to his church to continue to proclaim that good news, that gospel, the word of God. God sent Jesus. Jesus died and rose. He gave his word to the apostles and his spirit to help them proclaim it. The apostles then gave it to the Thessalonians and it goes out from them. This is how it, how it works. Now, I think it's important to notice here there's two words describing the response of the Thessalonians to this proclamation of, of God's word uh, to, to, the, to the gospel. Notice here, the first is that they received it. The word means to, to welcome, to, to have in as a guest, a warm welcome, if you will. And the other word there is you accepted it. The word means to, to seize or to grasp or to take hold of. So the picture here is that these Thessalonians eagerly embraced this word that was proclaimed to them about Jesus and about how he could save them from their sins. It's the same way that you might think of, of embracing a, a letter from a loved one. So back in the day, people used to write letters. Well, imagine getting one from someone that you haven't heard from in a long time and you, you, you love them, you want to you grab a hold of it and you want to read, read it. Or maybe if... Uh, yeah, the owner of your favorite sports team sends you a letter with all access passes to the, to the sidelines. You're going to hold on to that and embrace it because it's meaningful to you. Well, it's with that same so, sort of, of eagerness and warmth and, 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 and delight that these Thessalonians received the Word of God, the Gospel. And Paul says that, that the reason you did it, even though you, even though you heard it from us, you knew it wasn't from us. You knew it wasn't ours. You see, as, as the gospel was, was proclaimed, those, chapter 1, verse 4 says, who are uniquely loved by God, his chosen, knew that it was from God. They heard the message and they said, that's not just people's opinions. That's not just somebody posting their, their thoughts out there. That is from heaven. This is the same thing that Jesus said would happen. He said, my sheep hear my voice. This is what happens to a believer when you're, you're born again. That for some reason, the good news about the gospel all of a sudden goes from some message that maybe you've heard many times or maybe it's the first time. But for some reason, you believe it. And you say, that's true. That is from God. And that's exactly what the Thessalonians did here. They believed that this word was from God. And, and Paul helpfully here uh, uh, contrasts the difference between the, the word of God and the word of, of men. You see, Paul and the Thessalonians, and we should know that there is a great difference between the philosophy and the, the psychology and the sociological suggestions that people create to try to, to grapple with life and everything that it throws at us and the divine revelation that comes from the creator of life. There is a eternally distant chasm between those, those two things. You see, one is earthly wisdom, the other is heavenly wisdom. One is, one is infallible, the other is fallible. One is unchanging because it comes from an unchanging God, the other is ever-changing because it's given by ever-changing people and, 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 and different backgrounds and trends. One is authoritative. The other is opinion. One you must receive. The other you can just consider. This week as I was thinking about what this, this looks like 
Um, I thought of an illustration from our home. So we have five children. They're all sweet. They all are perfect, never sin. But, well, okay, occasionally they do. And occasionally they're upstairs and things get really rowdy. I don't know what they're doing up there, but it sounds like some sort of WWE match is happening right above us. And so what I'll often do is I'll send a kid upstairs and I'll say, hey, tell them to stop it. And oftentimes when they, they go upstairs, what happens to them? Not only are they disregarded, but then they are tackled and assaulted also. And then they come back downstairs and they really didn't listen to me. So what we learned in our house, there was a very important thing that we had to communicate. We would tell the messenger who was about to go upstairs and warn the children, say, tell them dad said. Dad said you need to settle down. It still doesn't always work, but it's supposed to work because it's different than a sibling coming upstairs and saying, hey, stop it, and the authority of mom and dad, I'm speaking on behalf of mom and dad, settle down. Well, in a much more serious way, the Thessalonians knew that when this word of the gospel came to them, that this wasn't just a bunch of traveling philosophers, this wasn't just a bunch of people who were religious, you know, bobbleheads just just spitting wisdom, but no, 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 this this was God's word that came to us and it came authoritatively. You see, man's wisdom may inspire and influence you, but it is God's word and God's word alone that actually has the power to transform you. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He, his word alone can save us from our sins and all the effects of it. Hebrews 4.11 says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, the gospel, it's alive and it does something when it gets into the hearts of of believers. It, It changes them. Which is exactly what he says here. He says this word is at work in you believers. In the original language, it's, it's the present tense. It's an ongoing thing. This word that you received, it has taken up residence in you by the Spirit of God, and it is continually working. It, God's word is doing something in you. It's, it's like the illustration that Jesus will use of, of yeast in, in dough. It spreads and it changes it. Well, This is what the Holy Spirit is doing if you're a believer with God's word in you. He's using God's word to convict us of sin, to encourage us to keep trusting, to correct our wrong thinking, to instruct us in truth, to assure us of God's love. It it warms our affections to delight in God. This is how the word is at work in believers. It changes our affections. And this is what is happening right now. This is why I prayed at the beginning. I prayed... Similar sorts of themes all the time. God, would you do a supernatural work by giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe, wills that are surrendered, affections that are raised, because I can't do that. But God's, God can, by his word, for his glory. So right now, my job is to stand behind the word, to lift it up, and to say, here's what God's word says. Now before I do that, I need to 
pray and interpret and seek to apply first to my own life and then think about what it means for us. But then my job is to, to throw the word out there, if you will, to herald it, to proclaim it. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit then helps you to receive it, to discern truth from, ah, that wasn't so good, to be able to sift through, but to be able to discern and then receive and believe and respond in obedience. He then empowers that. This is how the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in the lives of of believers, which should greatly affect the way that we relate to God's Word, that we come to it humbly. We come to it with a teachable spirit, assuming that it's us that needs to be corrected, not the Bible. Coming with a surrendered heart that says, God, there's things that are really precious to me, but I want you to have your way in me. Shape me through what I see in the Scriptures. Change me. It changes our whole posture of the way that we approach God's Word. Very opposite, of course, to the way Satan treats God's Word, which we hear echoed all the time of, did God really say? Which tempts us to put ourselves above Scripture to then evaluate it and see if it lives up to our standards. Where God says, no, 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 bow your knee before the Word of God because it's from God. Not that we worship the Bible, but we worship the God who gives us the Scriptures. It also, by the way, is a great encouragement to us in our ministry. It affects the way that we, that we minister the Word, right? That it should make us hopeful, that if this is really God's word, then we could proclaim it with great hope that God might actually use it. Because I sure can't do anything to help anybody, but God's word might be able to. If God will be so merciful to apply it, we can do it hopefully. We can also do it boldly, that we don't need to cower and apologize. I'm sorry if this hurts your opinion, your, your feelings. We don't, we don't need to do that. We don't need to be jerks either. That's another sermon for another day. But, but with kindness, we can be bold. Not, not, not shrinking back. And also humbly, understanding that any good fruit that comes, it's because God did it. So the way we relate to God's word is is greatly impacted by the way we view God's word, which the Thessalonians saw rightly. They saw as it not just being a word, but God's word. So I just want to say, if you're new to Delray Baptist Church, this is one of the things that our church strives to be about. We, we We strive to be in and about God's word. We want to read the Word. We want to memorize the Word. We want to study the Word. We want to preach the Word. We want to discuss the Word. We want to apply the Word. We want to not compromise on the Word. We feel like we have no right to edit it. But rather, our job is to to minister it. Which, John, I just want to say thank you. I mentioned it a moment ago, but brother, I think you've been a a spectacular example of this in our midst. That any, any counseling session or just asking for advice... I always hear God's Word worked back into it, that this is how the Word shapes us. I can tell it's shaped your thinking, which then helps to shape our thinking. So thank you for the way that you've ministered God's Word uh, among us. May that live on, right? What Paul is saying here is that, that faith is a proper response to God's Word. He's seen it in them and specifically because their faith is imitating the faith of other believers. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He says, you responded to God's word like others who encounter the Almighty. 
A similar sort of joy, a similar sort of hope, a similar sort of love, but supremely and in our context, a willingness to suffer. A willingness to suffer. Verse 14, for, he's explaining what he means, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. They meaning the churches that are in Judea. Paul relays the fact that the Judean church had suffered greatly at the hands of religious leaders. And this is something you find all through the book of Acts where in Jerusalem, uh, believers were, were shunned, they were slandered, they were sentenced to prison, they were even stoned to death and beheaded. But this opposition wasn't just among the Jews. So it wasn't just the, the Jewish people who were rejecting the good news about Jesus, but he says here, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. When you look through the book of Acts, you see this as well. As soon as you move out of Jerusalem, it's not like everything gets better for the believers. They're met with riots and mocking and ostracism and imprisonments and torture and, and martyrdom. But the Thessalonians, he says, you guys were willing to suffer for, for Jesus. You were willing to. Important thing to, to, to keep in mind. Willingness to suffer for Jesus is proof that you know Jesus. Willingness to suffer for Jesus is proof that you know Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that someone who doesn't know Jesus could, in some way, shape, or form, suffer for him. But I'm saying those who do know him are going to be willing to suffer for him. It's one of the, the evidences that God is indeed working in you. Because the believer knows that, okay, this is indeed God's word. And God's word tells me God is going to get a lot of glory right now. He's going to be shown as, as, as worthy because I'm going to keep trusting him through all of these things that are very hard. You see, when common sense says, just deny him. Just go ahead and mark, mark Muslim on, on the sheet. Nobody's going to know. God knows what's in your heart. Just go with the flow. Common sense says that, but if you, if you receive God's word as what it really is, it changes you and it convinces you that you can't do that because your allegiance is to another. So I would ask you, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to obey him and trust him and follow him and, and respond to his word in such a way that it may be costly for you. This is something that, that all believers everywhere must constantly wrestle with. Because the world is opposed to you following Jesus. Everything is kind of aimed the other way, if you will. I was talking with Jason Seville, one of the... The, the new, new pastors here who served in, uh, in East Asia for, uh, for a number of years there. And I asked him about persecution there among, among the church in, in China. And he says that he was speaking with some, some underground church leaders. And he said that the thing that they find most is the constant temptation and pressure to, to compromise on the smallest bits of obedience because Stepping out in obedience is going to put you in the light and get you in trouble. He gave one, one example. He said, um, he said there, was a, uh, there, was a, there was a church, and one of the members, there was, there was a, a sister in the congregation who, um, 
had moved in with her boyfriend and was in an immoral relationship. And they had pleaded with her to turn from that relationship and to, um, yeah, to, to trust the Lord in this. They had taught clearly that that, that sort of, of relationship undermines God's design for marriage and that Jesus warns very strongly that if it's not repented of, that that sort of, of sin leads to, to eternal destruction. But she remained unrepentant despite all their pleas and their patience and their prayers. And so it came down to, are they going to, are they going to, are they going to discipline her? Are they, going to, are they going to bring it before the congregation and, and have to, to, to remove her name from, from membership because she's living as a hypocrite? which everybody knows that this is, this is one of the great charges against Christians is we, we're hypocrites and to protect the name of Jesus. Are they, are they going to do that? Well, the tricky thing about the situation is that her, her boyfriend was a police officer. And so if they went through with this, he was going to find out about the church. And the whole thing was probably going to turn out to a bunch of people being arrested and, and who knows what else after that. And the pastor just, just shared how, how much the pressure to try and protect yourself and try and say, well, this time, you know, we're just going to give, we're, we're, we're going we're to treat it this way and we're going to make little compromises here and there. And, and whether it be that situation for churches or for individuals, we are constantly faced with this sort of pressure. Are we going to trust Jesus right now when doing it could be costly? Work? Are, 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 you, are, you, are you willing at work to trust Jesus and obey his word even if it's going to cost you something? Maybe even your dream job? Are you willing to, to trust Jesus and obey his word even if it's going to cost you relationships or money or comfort or whatever it may be? This is hard, and Paul knew it was hard. This is not easy, and that's why he says, I'm so thankful for your faith. Your faith is so encouraging, and I can't stop thanking God for all the ways that you have been an example to so many people for trusting God in the midst of very hard situations. We thank you that you received the word and walked in faith that imitates the suffering of other Christians. And Delray Baptist, I want to say in, very, in a very similar way, I've been encouraged by your faith as you endure trials of various kinds. When I think of, of sicknesses, I've, you know, many of you suffer in the midst of, of sicknesses. I remember a, a conversation with, with Grandma Becky about a year ago um, where I was asking her how she was doing and how she was viewing all of the, the difficult things she was facing with her health. And she said, you know, Garrett, um, I'm ready to go anytime Jesus wants me. But until then, I view the doctor's office as my, as my mission field. So every doctor and every nurse is going to hear about Jesus. And she sure did. That's what she does, you know. Because she, she sees this as, as, as a way to trust the Lord in the midst of her suffering. So many of you are, are, are doing that in so many ways. Through, I can't, I, this morning I sat down with the membership directory and I just looked through page after page after page. And I'm not going to mention any more names here because of the sensitivity of some of these things. But I was, I was just moved I was moved with thankfulness for the ways that in this church, watching people keep trusting Jesus in the midst of marital struggles and parenting struggles and miscarriages and an inability to, to get pregnant 
and a desire to be married and dark depressions and grief over racial pain and broken relationships and the death of loved ones and the losses of jobs and financial strain and abiding struggles with sin, unjust treatments, closed doors on things that you, you came here to do. And I just want to say thank you because watching you receive God's word as God's word and continuing to try to trust him in the midst of so many things, it warms my soul to keep trusting Jesus. So thank you for that as a congregation. And what Paul would want all of us, I think, to see here is the way we gain strength and peace in the midst of suffering is by continuing to receive God's word as God's word and allowing it to lift our eyes to Jesus who assures us that he is in us and with us and for us in the midst of it all. Like this, John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Thessalonian church believed that. They believed that Jesus had overcome, and because of that, they were willing to walk by faith and receive God's word as God's word, despite the suffering that came because of it. But sadly, not everybody receives God's word as God's word. And in light of that, Paul relays sobering news about the expectation of judgment to come is the second point. Rejecting the gospel brings God's wrath. Rejecting the gospel brings God's wrath. Middle of verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul turns his attention away from the faithfulness of the Thessalonian believers to the unfaithfulness of those who oppose Jesus and his gospel. And he, re- he relays to them the terrifying reality that awaits those who will not repent. And he lays out what appear to be here five charges against the first century Jews and their response to the gospel that seemed to be uh, mirrored by the Gentile unbelievers as well. Notice there again, verse 15, they killed the Lord Jesus. Jesus was, of course, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that he he was the king, he was the savior. But rather than receiving him, They rejected him and they despised him and they crucified him on a hill. They killed the Lord Jesus. We have no king but Caesar, they said. So they killed the Lord of glory. Secondly, they they killed the prophets. All those who came before Jesus proclaiming his coming, telling them they needed to repent, that the religious leaders in Israel, they hated them and they silenced them and they, they put them to death. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, John the Baptist lost his head. Not only that, but but he says the third charge, they they drove us out, referring to the apostles here. Rather than than receive the the apostles and the message about Jesus, they they chased them trying to kill him. If If you watch the book of Acts, it's just like they're getting chased from town to town to town everywhere they're going. 
Fourthly, not only did they do those things, but, but in all of this, it, it displeases God. I mean, God has been so kind to sinners. He gave us a way to be made right with him. He sent his only son, Jesus. But rather than receive him with joy and give him honor, we yawn and we mock and we mute God's word and God's messengers who, who bring it. And this grieves and displeases and rightly enrages God. Because it's not only a sin against him to say, we don't want your salvation. We want to come up with our own ways that fit our own philosophies. It's not only a sin against God, but it also is a sin against humanity. That's what he says there. It also opposes all mankind. The word oppose there means to be hostile, to be contrary to, to be against. So, so rather than opening the door for people to hear that Jesus can save them from their sin, he says you're opposing God by, again, muting them and not letting the messengers come in and proclaim it. You're, you're fighting against them. Verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, either by locking them up or putting gag orders on them or killing them. Whatever we got to do, we got to shut up the messengers. And God says that's opposing mankind. Now, this is an interesting twist, isn't it? Because if we were just to go out and ask people, hey, what do you think about Christians who say that everybody is a sinner and that you need to turn from your sin, you need to, to turn away from trusting yourself, you need to turn away from just living for yourself, you need to turn away from your sin, and you need to believe in Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that he's the only way of salvation. And that if you don't do that, there is eternal judgment that's waiting. I mean, I encourage you, this is what we should do. Go out and talk to people about that today. What will the response be? Some will hear it and say, that sounds like that's from God. I think that's true for some reason. But most of the world, what is the response going to be? The, the world says that calling people to repent of their sins and surrender their life to Jesus is bigotry. It's oppressive. It's hate speech. It's regressive. It's anti-intellectual. It's opposed to human flourishing. But God disagrees. He says that actually rejecting God, God's word, rejecting Jesus, is not only displeasing to him, but it's also damaging, destructive, and hostile against humanity. Because people were created to know and love and enjoy God and we've rejected that, and we're scurrying about trying to figure out some way to make our lives right. And God says, I'm going to tell you the way. And we say, I don't want your way. I want my way. And he says that as you shut up the messengers who proclaim the gospel, you're actually opposing the humanity that you say you're trying to help. And, and Paul does boldly call out the Jewish opponents to Jesus here. I mean, he's tracing their persistent persecution from the prophets to Jesus to the apostles to the churches, exhibit A, B, C, D, all the way down through here. Now, some might ask, that sounds pretty anti-Semitic. 
right? This it sounds like he is anti-Jew here. No, Paul was not. He was a Jewish man. He would even say, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians. And he was grieved that his people rejected Jesus. Listen to this from Romans 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His posture toward his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters is he has compassion for them. And, and though he was a missionary to the, to the Gentiles, he always went first to the synagogues. He brought the, the gospel to the Jew first and then to the, the Greek. He even says in Romans chapter 11 that, that, he know, that part of what fuels his, his ministry to the Gentiles is he knows that it's part of God's plan to bring Gentiles to faith to then make Israel jealous so that they will repent and say, we do want our Messiah. And when you look in Romans 9 through 11, it seems that he has great hope that God will actually do that. But what he is saying here about this group of, of Jews who are opposing the gospel is that their zeal is rooted in error, not truth. And it's leading them astray. Listen to this from Romans 10. Uh, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, meaning God giving us his righteousness through faith in Jesus, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He says they're missing the whole point of the law and the prophets. Jesus is the whole point. Before we move on here, I think one important note, just to, it would be wrong for us to not observe this here. Paul loves his Jewish brothers and sisters, and because he loves them, he is disagreeing with them. It is loving to disagree with people of your own ethnic, cultural, and political tribe when they disagree with Jesus. I'll say that again. It is loving to disagree with people of your own ethnic, cultural, and political tribe when they disagree with Jesus. This is much needed in our day. I mean, one of Satan's schemes today is to tempt us toward tribalism. And for that to get into the church in such a way that it builds walls and divides us and embitters us against one another and dishonors the very God that we say that we're representing. Paul here knows that his allegiance is first to Jesus, not to any other tribe that he could have found it in. And he also makes clear here that the hatred of Jesus isn't just limited to the Jews. It's a Gentile thing as well. It's a human thing. It's a mankind issue. And he says here that rejecting Jesus has dire consequences. Notice here he says, they're filling up the measure of their sins. It's very interesting here. This, God uses this language in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, of Gentile nations whose sin is being stored up before God's eyes because of their unwillingness to repent of their idolatry and immorality and injustice. And, and Jesus speaks in, in similar light 
uh, about the way that, that the nation of Israel did this. Listen to this from Matthew 23, speaking to the religious leaders. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Here Jesus foretelling the future that Paul just talked about. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the first martyr, to the blood of Zechariah, the last prophet to be murdered in the Old Testament before John the Baptist, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus gives a sobering picture here of, of the filling up the measure of their sins. All of these sins are being stored up before God's eyes to come like a tidal wave of judgment upon them. And Paul, just like Jesus, is saying that because of national Israel's unrepentant idolatry and unwillingness to receive the prophets who talked about Jesus and Jesus as their Messiah, they have become like Gentile nations and they have forfeited their inheritance and they can only expect God's judgment. The weighty word. And it doesn't get lighter. He concludes there by saying, wrath has come upon them at last. Now what is wrath? Wrath is God's good, pure, holy, righteous anger against sin. That because he's a good God, sin is rebellion against him and his ways. And God, in a way that humans can't ultimately, has 100% completely pure anger toward this evil. We can have reflections of that at times, but, but God and God only. That's why he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says, you don't even understand about vengeance. Only I can deal it rightly. Because I know what you don't know and see what you don't see. Now, what does it mean then that this, this wrath has come upon them at last? Well, the, the tense of the Greek word here can be used to refer to a future event that is so certain that it's presented in the present tense. And I think that's what's happening here. It, the meaning is that the, the full wrath of God is certainly coming upon these people who, if they persist in their unrepentant sin of rejecting Jesus and oppressing His church, Now, you might say, that is pretty hopeless. That feels very bleak. Now, what I'm about to share here is, is not to weaken anything that I just said. There is indeed a tidal wave of judgment that is awaiting to fall upon sinners if they do not repent of their sins. And all of our sins are piled up before the eyes of God, and there is a day of justice that is coming. But the Bible also tells us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He loves to see sinners turn and live. So even though this is here, it is actually also hopeful because when you hear such a weighty word about wrath to come, it's a merciful warning. It's like somebody saying, there's a tornado coming, take cover, and let me tell you where the tornado shelter is. 
It's like saying there's a tsunami that is about to come and take everybody off of the beach. Let me show you where high ground is. This is a merciful warning to say this now. For those of you who this morning who, who have not turned from your sins and have, are resisting Jesus, there is wrath to come, but this is mercy to you to hear this word that there's a, there's a way out. There's a place to flee, and his name is Jesus. Turn to him. There's hope in that. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that we know that is because the one who wrote this is a very testimony to the fact that God saves people who formerly rejected him. I'm not sure if you, if you caught this or not when you were reading it, but, but we've heard something like this before. Back in Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen, who was the deacon in the church, and he began preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus, and the religious leaders hated him for it. So they conspired against him, and they put him on trial and asked him to testify. So he did. And he walked them from, from the Garden of Eden all the way through their history, showing that this, the reason that they rejected Jesus is because they were doing the same thing that their fathers have been doing. They've always opposed God's messengers, which is the same thing that Jesus said. It's the same thing that Paul said. Well, this guy, Stephen, said it. And this is the way he concluded his sermon. This is a way to end it, by the way. Verse, chapter 7, verse 51 of Acts. Stephen says this to the religious leaders. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And then he drops the mic. Like that's the end of his sermon. Well, it was not received well, as you might imagine. This is what happens after that. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, watch this, and they stopped their ears. We don't want to hear what you're saying about Jesus. They stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, which is a form of execution. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Stephen did, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to their knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Saul, up-and-coming religious leader who hated Christians, oversaw and authorized the execution of Stephen because Stephen said that the religious leaders have been doing what they've always been doing, which is rejecting God's prophets and messengers, which is why they killed Jesus. So what does God do? Well, he answers Stephen's prayer. Stephen prayed, do not hold this sin against them. And in God, in his mercy, said okay. So two chapters later, one chapter later, 
he meets this guy named Saul riding on his horse to go persecute some more Christians. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus intervenes and knocks him off his donkey and saves him. And the man is born again. He's a new man. He's forgiven. Now, his history was so bad that some believe that's why the church started calling him Paul. Can we just call you Paul? Because when we think about Saul, all we think about is what you used to be like. You used to kill people. You used to kill Christians. But now, Paul loves Christians. And here in 1 Thessalonians, he now delivers the exact same message to the Thessalonians that he, he had Stephen executed for. You want to talk about a transformation? There is hope in the midst of this. God can save rebels no matter how far gone they seem. So if you're here this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, I would, I would ask you to simply ask God if indeed the things that you've heard today are his word. Ask him. Just go and I, just, just cry out and say, okay, God, if you're real, let me know, is this is this your word? Is this, your, is this word infallible and authoritative and true? Please do not resist his goodness in the good news of the gospel of Jesus. I'd love to talk with you about that afterwards or later this week. Please know that receive, receiving the gospel as God's word is pleasing to God, but rejecting the gospel brings God's wrath. And if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to keep receiving God's word. No matter what suffering may come, keep receiving it. Keep seeking it. Keep reading. Keep believing. Keep applying. Keep encouraging one another in the word and with the word. And as you keep proclaiming the gospel to people who right now may not seem like they want to hear it, do not lose heart because God can save anyone. Just yesterday, I was out at my parents' house, and on the refrigerator they have pictures of you know, uh, us kids, and um, I found several of them, but one of them was of me and Jason Seville, who just became another pastor, when we were in high school, playing pool, just standing there in our little, just smug little rebellion, and I just think back to where we were at that time, we just thought Christians were the dumbest thing that had ever come across. We, church was a joke to us. The idea of the gospel that we needed to turn and repent was just absolute, just nonsense. And I was just I was so encouraged to remember how merciful God was toward me. So I just want you, and to Jason, now those two guys are, are pastors of the same church. <laughs> Only God can do that kind of stuff. I just want to remind you that no matter who it is that you're sharing the gospel with, no matter who they are, where they've been, what they've done, they're not too far gone for the strong arm of God to reach them. Keep proclaiming his word as his word, believing that he can change people, and he delights to do it. God, would you?